Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is The Guardian. not a horse race at all. Each side has a very different objective. The government has the shoreline and is trying to hold on to it. The opposition needs to seize control and they're different challenges because when you are in charge, when you have government, you have got timing, you have got the megaphone, you have got the resources, you've got every tool at your disposal to use the levers of power to hold on. Hello, lovely pod people. Catherine Murphy with you. Each time we do a Guardian Essential poll, so that's once a fortnight, Peter Lewis and I do some in-depth analysis of what the numbers mean. We do this for a webinar that is put together by the progressive think tank, the Australia Institute. This conversation you're about to listen to was recorded on Tuesday of this week, which happened to be International Women's Day. And we discussed, well... I guess we discussed whether or not there is a mood in the country for a change of government. At a time when the public's focus is sharply on the floods and on the Ukraine-Russia conflict, how do the major parties intervene to try and shape the narrative? Is it by talking about national security and the location of potential nuclear submarines? Or is it by providing cash for women's safety programs? And in the lead up to the federal election, are voters even listening to the story that each of the political parties want them to hear? So this chat is moderated by Ebony Bennett, who's the Deputy Director of the Australia Institute, and Eb's about to ask me the first question. Catherine, I did want to start with the floods on the East Coast. They've been devastating and they're not over yet. Can you just give us a little um, picture of what the debate is like, if there even is one, um, at the national level of politics at the moment? Uh, Yes, look, floods uh, have definitely been front and centre, absolutely. Uh, And these events are just diabolical. Uh, I haven't been out in the field, but colleagues have. and the stories coming back from uh, these areas hardest hit uh, just, they just break your heart. It's just absolutely horrendous uh, what has happened to people uh, in Australia over the last few days. There's also been uh, you know, really, really palpable anger on the ground in some of these communities about the slowness of the response uh, you know, like getting helicopters in, people having to rescue each other, people having to, you know, sort of deal with these with the catastrophe in real time uh, without uh, what they would regard as sufficient level of support, um, either from 
local, state or federal governments. That's kicked off a whole discussion about uh, disaster preparedness and the IPCC report, uh, which also dropped, uh, I think it was late last week, uh, and that basically tells us that Australia is on the front line of this global climate crisis, that is the consequences of decades of inaction by governments, our own government here in Australia and also other governments around the world. We, this is sadly uh, the new reality and that raises a whole bunch of policy questions. We are only just beginning to grapple with. There's, of course, actions on the, on the mitigation side so actions to basically reduce the risks of harm to, to people, to animals, to property. Then there's also the whole area of adaptation and the consequences of that. Like we're dealing with communities now that, uh, that can't insure their homes because they've lived through back-to-back disasters, either floods or fires. You know, we're only just now starting to... have a conversation that we should have had 20 years ago about the practical implications of all of this. Now, we've got to start to come to terms with the costs that are going to be associated with living in a changing climate, uh, as well as obviously the risks to life and, and property. So, look, this is very serious in terms of the politics of it, uh, you know, people on the ground are saying the, the the feeling in communities is not as quite as visceral as it was during the bushfires, uh, but it's close, <laughs> and people are you know just yes very frustrated with government. Uh, yeah, interesting times. It certainly is. And uh, Pete, coming to you now on um, the polling, I want to start by bringing up these first slides to share with everyone. And while you bring those up, up, Eb, for those listening to the pod, if you want to play from home, essentialreport.com.au, and you can jump in and have a look at the numbers we're talking about, even though you can't see them on the screen of your podcast. So thanks, Pete Lewis. This first slide that we're looking at is views towards re-electing the federal coalition government. Take us through these numbers. Well, this is one of those matrices that pollsters around the world use to Um, pick up whether there is a mood for change. Um, It's not linked to voting intention. It is just a general proposition, has this government, is it it deserving of another go Um, or is it someone else's turn? And you can see that since August 21, there has been a hardening of the view that um, it is time for this government to move into the annals of history. That doesn't decide the election, but it does create the underlying mood for change. And historically, Australians only change government in a way. Close elections usually end up with the government holding on. So it says to me that the mood is building. There is still 20% undecided in those numbers as well. But if you got half of those jumping into time to give someone else a go by the time the election's called, that's kind of pretty close to it in terms of that momentum to to change government. Um, I guess the other point I'd just like to sort of mark early is that we look at polling as a horse race and we look at politics as a horse race. We try not to with the Essential Report. I've just been thinking about that over recent weeks. It's not a horse race at all. Each side has a very different objective. The government has 
the shoreline and is trying to hold on to it. And without wanting to use water metaphors in the current context or war metaphors either for that matter, the the opposition needs to it, it needs to seize control. And they're different challenges because when you are in charge, when you have government, you have got timing, you have got the megaphone, you have got the resources. When you do not bring in an integrity commission, you've got every tool at your disposal to use the levers of power to hold on. And we've seen over the last 50 years, close elections, Keating with the um, GST in 93, Howard in 2001, even Morrison last time around, incumbents have more tools to hold on. So it's really important for this underlying sentiment to be there for it to be a condition for a change of government. Yeah. Um, moving on to this next one, general attitudes to change by age. Mm. The, the first bit of this is just saying that my working thesis was we're all over it and looking for something new. What this actually tells us is that while that is part of the mood, the stronger mood is still, particularly amongst older Australians, wanting to go back to the way things were. But there are big differences there you can see in different generations. If you're 18 to 34, you're ready for something new. If you're over 55, you just want them to go back to the way they were. The, the, the telling thing here is regardless of your generation, in numbers, if they're the options, you are not happy with how things are going. So as a framing exercise, I think um, that creates a bit of a challenge in terms of what the change narrative is. Are we going back and different demographics are after um, different things there? Um, and now we're coming to the preferred political party to handle the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Uh, 24% coalition, 24% Labor, neck and neck there, 33% no difference and 19% unsure. Pete, what's your analysis of that breakdown? We're, we're a bit divided. Look, I think it is more a counterintuitive result than something that takes you anywhere, really. Um, there is a perception that a khaki election is what the government wants. Um, we spoke two weeks ago about how the China national security threat wasn't taking, um, that Labor was actually seen as the better party um, of managing the complex relationship with China. These figures say that when it comes to Ukraine, there really isn't a brand differentiation at the moment. I think the bigger impact of Ukraine, rather than it being an issue that people are going to vote on is the amount of public space it takes up. I think we are in this point where, going back to my earlier analysis, there is a mood for change, but I think there still needs to be some space for Labor and Anthony Albanese to establish themselves. The concern with an all-consuming war is it takes a lot of the oxygen out of um, the election campaign. It will always be competing with these horrendous unfolding events in the Ukraine. Um, and it also provides a platform for the incumbent to, again, have the advantage of incumbency of just being up there on a stage being leaderly. And um, I do think that while it's not about who's the better at managing it, it still will influence the dynamic of this election. Yeah, Catherine, coming to you next on that, national security defence issues generally seen as stronger ground for the coalition, particularly coming into an election year, certainly with an actual conflict happening, I guess the conventional wisdom would be that we would see that reflected in the polls. But I, I don't know about you, I was kind of quite shocked to see that, even though previous polls have, have kind of showed that it's not perhaps the, the fertile ground the coalition was hoping for. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting because if we look at essential polls over the last 
few months, we've sort of we've we've got an interesting story there. We had a poll uh, a few months ago, uh, which basically showed the major parties level pegging around management of the economy, which surprised uh, Peter and I no end. Um, then last week we had, uh, or last fortnight we had uh, the poll that Pete referenced a minute ago. This was about China and the and Australia's relationship relationship with China, more uh, respondents felt that China was a complex relationship to be managed than, than a threat to be confronted, right, uh, which is sort of interesting in, in Morrison's whole staging of the campaign, which is, is sort of as obvious as the nose on your face. Then we kind of roll forward to this uh, insight, which is that people aren't necessarily rating the coalition ahead of Labor in terms of uh, the, you know, the, managing the blowback of this conflict, of this European conflict. All of that's a really interesting picture to me. Uh, it suggests that uh, some of the sort of verities that we have used in, in political reporting are perhaps, uh, are perhaps in flux rather than verities. Mm-hmm. Um, look, I work in a major national news organisation. I can tell you that the only thing that people are interested in reading about at the present time are the floods and the conflict in Ukraine. I'm certain we could break Watergate tomorrow and it would not be read at this point in time. People are very, very fixated on those two very important big stories, one international, one local. As Pete says, that that is problematic for an opposition that's yet to define their candidate and yet to define their call to action. If people are not tuned in to that political contest and they're they're focused on on other issues, that is not great for Labor. Also in that sort of down to the weeds, we see a bit of a swing back to the coalition in this fortnight in Queensland, obviously a pretty critical state. So, but anyway, I do think it is interesting though that these verities that, you know, people who have been in political reporting as long as I have, i.e. the coalition, you know, is, is marked up by voters on the economy, the coalition is marked up by voters on national security. Our data suggests that that is no longer the case and that is genuinely interesting. Mm. I wonder how much the the performance has been what's undermined that rather than the brand, if you know what I mean. So yeah. brand advantage works until you, you take the product and it tastes like garbage, right? And I think um, particularly on national security, Morrison is seen to have been responsible for a series of missteps which Labor has supported in a bipartisan manner but have managed to take the gloss off um, their, their um, perception of their, their, their capabilities on that area at the same time. Um, I want to stick with Ukraine for a bit. Uh, Catherine, we have seen the international community, um, particularly Europe, really rally behind the, uh, the people of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. This is obviously a huge humanitarian disaster unfolding. Um, we've seen kind of raising, uh, rising levels of sanctions applied to Russia and Australia providing aid and, and applying sanctions, even though the Prime Minister himself acknowledged, um, you know, they, they won't have much of an impact. Um, but just going back to these slides, um, this next one is attitudes towards 
Australia's commitment to increasing its financial um, support and financial support for weapons. Um, Did anything stick out to you from these, Catherine, or is it about what you're expecting given the level of public interest? I think given the level of public interest, I think we could assume even before we had these numbers that the Australian public was on board with uh, the provision of lethal support to Ukraine via NATO, which is what... uh, Australia and other nations are doing at the present time. I think gut tells you people would be on board with that because everybody is seeing these, you know, images every night on television, on the internet of people fleeing from this dreadful, dreadful conflict. And I think everybody watching this conflict has this sort of dread and horror that we haven't seen the worst of this yet. So, uh, and obviously I think, you know, a, a, a democratic country, um, you know, sort of vulnerable to um, an ethno-nationalist aggressor like Putin, all of that resonates. Uh, you know, this is, and obviously President Zelensky of Ukraine is just a master in terms of uh, the projection of um of, of values and courage in the face of adversity. I think he's become a very sympathetic figure around the world. So I'm not surprised that Australians are on board with providing lethal support to a country like Ukraine and also humanitarian support. That makes sense. But, uh, I mean, this is this is just a horrible development, obviously. Um, it's quite amazing, these events and how how quickly things have fallen into place in terms of the of the world order, for a better better term, over the last couple of weeks. The return of Germany, um, you know, the sort of rallying around the democratic world. Um, it is, yeah, it's just an extraordinary story. Can I just say, though, I was a bit surprised at the large number of people either neutral or opposed, given the almost unitary narrative that has been running through our media to the extent that people that give a contrary view are kicked out of Q&A or, um, you know, we've, we've shut down Russia today and there are, you know, valid policy reasons behind that. There is a large number of people that I, I, I was expecting that to be up in the 70s, 70s mm-hmm. to 80s, actually. So I don't, I, I don't know. There's something interesting going on. Yeah, yeah. But maybe, Pete, obviously, you know, the last kind of, you know, several decades of the 20th century was about avoiding a nuclear conflagration between America mm. and Russia. You know, this that that whole dynamic in the geopolitical order, you know, resonates deeply with people. Maybe it just people are just terrified about um, butterfly effects. Like, what does this mm. mean? What does... No, I am. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, it, it makes sense intuitively, right? Anyway, yeah, we're yeah. speculating. Sorry, Ed, back to... Oh, that's all right. And I'm sure we'll come back to this in the questions from the audience as well. But moving now on to views towards gender equality in Australia, we've got a whole range of statements here that people, respondents could either agree or disagree with. Pete, what stood out to you in these results? Oh. Sometimes it's the way you ask a question, obviously, and there's, um, I guess, the ones in terms of just setting the scene for International Women's Day at the bottom two, 80% support for the proposition there should be laws that require equal salaries for men and women in the same position and um, 76% for the proposition that although there has been a significant progress on gender equality, there is still a long way to go. Um, But then when you turn some of those propositions on the head, and this is to test negative frames, um, 
there is majority support for the proposition that gender equality is mostly to do with well-to-do people, which is a very quaint term, and I'm not sure why we're using this, except that it's benchmarked <laughs> over a number of years. Um, I think there's a number of well-to-do people in this discussion. Um, and then you've got that, while we've got the 70-odd saying there's a long way to go, you've also got 49% saying it's largely been achieved. So I, I think that says it's how you frame a question the same people will give you different responses. And for those that want to sort of dig deeper on those gender questions, go to essentialreport.com.au, have a play, and if you go into the gender, there's a really interesting insight, particularly on that question, gender equality has mostly been achieved. Knock me down with a feather, but 58% of blokes versus 42% of women <laughs> think it's been achieved, which leads to one of my sort of general insights on this, which half the Australian population thinks we've got a gender problem. So, um, <laughs> Catherine, coming to you, I want to come to that announcement from the weekend and the Prime Minister announcing, well, a whole bunch of ministers announcing um, a big package for women's safety and equality in general. Um, I think we're expecting kind of something along those lines, um, but uh, can you just take us through some of the highlights of that package and how far it will go towards fixing the problem? Yeah, well, there's, there's an interesting component of the government's package around consent that the government will fund the Human Rights Commission to uh, do uh, a big data set on that point uh, with Chanel uh, Contos advising, uh, and I think that's really interesting. And, and we've seen uh, both from the government on the weekend and then Labor today in terms of International Women's Day, uh, if you're listening on the pod, obviously we're speaking on Tuesday, uh, the uh, Labor had a consent initiative as well this morning, $77 million uh, to towards skilling teachers to have uh, conversations about respectful relationships with students. There were other measures that, uh, that the government put forward about uh, violence and safety. Like all of this is, is welcome and it, and it shows that the conversation, I think, over the last 12 months has begun to shift the dial a bit, really, um, on certainly certainly at the political level, even though there are, well, look, I mean, it would, would take me three hours to tell you how much there is still to do and how difficult some of that stuff is to actually do. But I think it's, I think, you know, we can be negative and we should, we should actually welcome progress when we see it. And there is visible progress, I think. Certainly, um, I think the government's learnt the odd thing over the last 12 months. And uh, and that that is that's good. I'd, I'd finish off the observation though with that um, you know that rather quaint um, locution that we've got that you know equality is the the province of well-to-do people, uh, well-to-do women. I mean, let's just call it for what it is: well-to-do women. Uh, and we've seen an interesting debate, uh, I think, start to spring up. I mean, not that it's new, people who, who, who understand gender theory and who are active in this area talk about intersectionality a lot, which means that feminism is a cause for, you know, not only white women, for all women uh, and for women, you know, uh, Indigenous women, uh, women from different ethnic backgrounds, dis women with disabilities, uh, and, that, and that the conversation needs to be inclusive. We have seen a very interesting, I think, debate in the public square uh, over the last 48 hours about that since the launch of uh, a list of demands uh, over the weekend by a group of very prominent women, including Grace Tame and, and Brittany Higgins. Uh, that group is 
more diverse than it's been given credit for in some of the, the toing and froing I've seen uh, in terms of debate about it. But we need to bear in mind when I acknowledge the, the progress of the last 12 months, and I mean it, we, the, the things, things have shifted over the last 12 months and that is bloody welcome. We do need to understand, though, that the conversation over the last 12 months has left a lot of people feeling uh, more more silenced and more marginalised than they have felt previously. And by that I mean First Nations women, you know, people of colour, et cetera. It's, it's really been a discussion, a white feminism discussion over the last 12 months. And I think everybody who's active in this discussion understands that it needs to be a broader discussion if we are to ever overcome Pete's point, which is that, half the country thinks we've got a gender problem. We do need to actually grow the roots down and and ensure that these conversations are inclusive, both for all women, regardless of means, background, et cetera, but also men and, and, uh, you know, it needs to be an inclusive conversation. Otherwise, we get nowhere. Yeah, and I think for people interested in exploring that kind of criticism of um, the last year of activism and who gets platformed and included and who is excluded, The Guardian did run a really great um, op-ed that people should uh, check out. Nina Fennell, uh, who began the Let Her Speak campaign, um, also had a really interesting tweet thread uh, on that problem of who gets raised up to be a voice for feminism and who doesn't get included in that um in that activism and that story. And I will just say uh, for those interested in Teach Us Consent, partly the reason why that survey that's been announced is so important is because that will actually measure whether the funds that are now going to go into schools to help teach consent all the way, I think, from kindergarten through to year 12, part of Chanel Contos's activism, um, the survey will actually help measure how much of an impact that's having on attitudes towards consent and knowledge about consent um, amongst school-age children. So very exciting uh, and well overdue. Yeah, and can I just say one thing really quickly, Ed? I just want to say on International Women's Day, um, I think we also need to be mindful, um, notwithstanding the point I'm making about inclusivity and making sure that the, the conversation is as broad and, and deep as possible. I just want to give a shout out to all of those uh, women, you know, Grace and Brittany Higgins and others who have put their own traumas in front of the Australian people over the last 12 months over and over again in order to shift the dial on some of this stuff. These, you know, these women are people. Um, that it, it's incredibly difficult to do that. Most of, many of us listening uh, to this conversation today will have, God forbid, had similar experiences. Uh, not everybody feels as though they can talk about them. I think we need to be really profoundly grateful to women who feel they can bring their personal stories into the public domain in order to affect social change. It's not without a cost. So I just actually want to acknowledge that today. Yeah. I think we might go now back to the horse race on the slides. Um, <laughs> Inevitably. <laughs> just to lower the tone uh, a bit. I think what we've got next is federal voting intention. Yeah. So we do have a federal election coming down the line towards us very quickly, as well as a federal budget. Pete, primary votes, what's happened here? There's been margin of error movement over the last 
fortnight, um, which is why we hate doing week to week. Um, there's been a 3% drop for Labor's primary and a 2% upswing in the coalition, which um, anyone that understands margin of error means absolutely nothing. Um, Labor is bouncing, coalition's bouncing. If the election was called at the moment, undecided votes would determine the outcome. Um, what else stands out here? Um, Greens are sitting at 10%, which is as good as they've been. Um, the independents, it's hard to get a read because we do a national average, so um, we can't really pick up the impact of the teal independents on a national vote because they're not um, campaigning everywhere, and I know that many of the people in this room will be interested in how they're going. 49, 44%, 7% undeclared. Um, I'm not sure if that gets much lower. I was doing some focus groups um, a couple of days ago. And the number of people that just say, uh, I go into the booth and I look at the two bits of paper and I make my call then, it's real. There are a bunch of undecided voters that people that just decide at the end, which is why, again, that analysis of the wave, um, if, if, if the zeitgeist is for change, I think change occurs. Um I, I look back on 2019 and say, well, does that theory hold and could I have seen that coming in advance? I felt at the time in the lead-up to the election two things. One was it was really messy and fractious and there was just we were being overwhelmed with um, policies and images and a lot of conflict. And the other thing was we asked a polling question the week leading up which said, are you happy? And we had this big... Um, <laughs> Big number of people that just said, yeah, I'm happy. It just felt like it wasn't there this time. It might be different this time. I'm just not prepared to call it yet, although I don't know. I, I go back to I think it's either going to be a big win or no win at all is the way I'm feeling at the moment. Right. Uh, well, we might go now to questions from the audience. Uh, I can see that we've got... Uh, over 900 people on the line with us today. Thank you so much to join uh, for joining us. You can put questions for our panel in the Q&A box and just a reminder, you can upvote uh, questions from other people if you think they're good. Uh, the first question is from John Knox, and this one might be for you, Catherine. We're seeing scientists increasingly linking natural disasters with climate change. Could this cause problems for the coalition giving their mixed messaging on climate? Oh, God. Oh, you want to kill me. You want to kill me. Um, uh, look, um, in terms of how it plays through the election cycle, well, uh, I just return to my familiar analysis for guys who, who come and uh, share this um, conversation with us regularly. Climate change works differently in different parts of the country. Uh, the coalition has got a, a significant problem in metropolitan Australia now because of their unconscionable record on climate policy over the last 10 years. That's why we're seeing the rise of teal independence. That's why we saw Scott Morrison, you know, negotiate around the clock last year with the National Party in order to land a net zero commitment because the coalition does have a problem in parts of metropolitan Australia now. Voters are joining the dots. Voters are working out that, uh, you know, that the conversation over the last 10 years, the weaponisation of this issue has not been in their interests. So there, is a, there are certainly a bunch of voters who are, who are motivated and activated by this issue. Uh, there, there does remain, however, differences in different parts of the country, uh, you know, and this is where sort of the, the crossover point between the climate science and culture war is so 
terrible for progress on this issue. So how does it play out in an electoral sense? Well, look, it's hard to judge. Um, certainly, um, you know, it, it will it will impact differently in different parts of the country. I think it is more difficult in this election cycle for the coalition to entirely weaponise climate action in the way that they have done in every election cycle since Tony Abbott won. I do think it is increasingly difficult for them to do that. But I also do think that their narrow casting uh, does still have resonance in parts of regional Australia. And I guess we'll have to wait till election night to just see how much resonance, I guess. Um, I will just pick up one more question on this before we move on to other topics. Um, the next question is from Ajaya, uh, who talks about in days gone by, Bill Shorten campaigned warning that the costs of inaction are far more than the costs of action. Um, how much inaction costs do you think we have incurred in the last three years of natural disasters, Catherine? Oh, oh boy. Um, well, look, obviously, in fairness to the government, the changing climate is a global issue and Australia is not in and of itself a major emitter. We do have one of the most carbon-intensive economies in the world and we export, um, sorry to be rude, a shit tonne of emissions to the rest of the world. So we're not as uh, minuscule a player as the government would like to present us as, but I need to say, to be factual, that obviously global heating is a global problem. This failure has been a global failure, right, not just in Australia, but obviously the coalition has its own, you know, record uh, to which, you know, stands before us. Um, you know, what's the cost? I don't know. What's the cost in, in dollars? Um, well, a lot if you um, count sort of rebuilding after the bushfires if you count rebuilding after this flood event. I mean, my heart bleeds for these people who are still living in caravans on the south coast, uh, people who have lost everything in the floods, who, you know, once they once they hit, you know, the logjam of insurance claims and then the backlog in materials uh, in this country at the moment, like it is going, the, the, the recovery from this is a year's proposition not a not a five minute proposition. It makes me so angry. It makes that that this that this is the position that we find ourselves in. So look, of course, there are dollar costs. There there are costs, you know, in in you know, property destruction. Obviously, it's had a you know an an impact on species. Um, you know, we got to get serious, people. We got to get serious. Um, so, you know, I guess I think I was uh, when I was on the Insiders, I'm trying to remember who said it at the weekend, whether it was Raf Epstein or Peter Van Onselen. Somebody said it very crisply that, you know, the cost of the mop-up jobs after these disasters is, is Australia's carbon tax to the extent that we are all paying it. Mm. Uh, and, and, you know, it, <laughs> yeah, anyway, I think I've made my point. Yeah, I will uh, come to you in a second, Pete. But again, uh, the Australia Institute, uh, we've proposed through our research a National Climate um, Disaster Fund funded by a levy on uh, gas and coal exports to help fund, yeah, mitigation and recovery after disasters that fossil fuels certainly contribute to turbocharging. So head on over to australiainstitute.org.au to find that. But, Pete, um, it's a long-standing election issue. Um, 
But where is it in the the polls at the moment, uh, in your opinion? Is it up there in terms of issues or are we still kind of in the thick of it with the, the floods and whatnot? Look, I think the floods has two impacts on the sort of current narrative. One is it reinforces for those that believe climate action is urgent that there are real consequences, as Catherine was speaking about. I think it creates a real, um, not that you need another proof point, but just another reason why people um, will get behind the teal independence in inner city seats across um, the East Coast. Um, I also think there is the competency issue, the reminder of bushfires where he didn't hold a hose with all the water that's going around at the moment in a sense that, again, the government to an extent has been MIA, particularly in um, the distribution of funds um, before the event, particularly around Lismore. On climate more general, um, I just think that both major parties see it as being an issue that is in their interest to neutralise. Labor sees it as an issue that will be weaponised against it in particular parts of Australia, which they need to win back. Um, the coalition, and you could see by Morrison's incremental but nonetheless movement on, on targets, sees it as a risk in the inner city. So I don't see climate being the chosen battleground for either of the major parties. That's not to say there isn't a role for either Teal Independence or Greens or other um, outside smaller players to be trying to influence that debate. But to me, it will not be the battleground of this coming federal election. Catherine, I wanted to ask you about the um, announcement of that $10 billion to build a base somewhere along the East Coast for potential submarines <laughs> um, <laughs> the idea of a national, you know, heightened state of national security. You can see why the government kind of wants to give the impression that things are moving ahead. But correct me if I'm wrong, we don't have a contract yet. We don't have a submarine model yet. We don't know how much it will cost yet. And we don't have a date for delivery yet. Am I wrong on any of those? No, no, I can't, I can't fault your logic. Uh, I'd add one more thing. There is also the ongoing history about how um, Australia is going to build nuclear submarines when it does not have a domestic nuclear industry. That, that, that has been a head scratcher right from day dot. Uh, how on earth we're going to perform that magic trick. Um, look, the, the government, uh, I suppose, uh, in terms of what, what's actually happening here, well, the, the, the change in contract means that there is potentially focus, and, and by that, by the, sorry, I should be clear, but the change in contract meaning the cancellation of the French contract and, and the shift to the AUKUS arrangement, it does sort of leave the government with this strategic gap that we don't, you know, that the sort of the threat environment is is objectively difficult, right? We have tensions in our region and tensions in the world. That's not politics or Scott Morrison making that up. That that's a thing that's happening. Uh, we definitely live in dangerous times. The prime minister is exactly right, uh, and. I suppose the lack of actually having assets <laughs> that we can deploy at this point in time, because of all the reasons you said, Ed, um, no, no model chosen, no costings, no idea, frankly, um, about how this is going to play out. There is a political downside for the government in that, 
because it's sort of like, oh, my God, what have, what have you done? We're vulnerable at the dangerous time. So obviously in political terms, the government does want to convey this sense to voters, look, we're on it, we're going to make these decisions as quickly as practicable, uh, and in terms of the location of the bases, we have this sort of, well, you know, maybe this one or maybe this place or maybe this, you know. I mean, it's sort of a bit silly, um, but uh, but it it sort of keeps the issue live and in front of people and, and, and looking as though it's going to mm. reach a landing point. The curiosity about the three locations is my colleague, uh, very hardworking foreign and defence correspondent Daniel Hurst, had a look at uh, the defence assessment in 2011 uh, for places you might want to put a submarine base. And look, I know this will astonish everybody, but the the three places that the government pulled out of the hat weren't top of the pops in terms <laughs> of where you might put a submarine sort of uh, base. Anyway. Look, that inspires it, confidence. It does. But, kind of, but also it reminds me a bit of, about a decade ago when the coalition was floating nuclear energy and then all of a sudden the other side's putting out postcards with a nuclear power plant on every point. It seems to me that the the political benefit, the political benefits of going early is the car key election national security, but there's a real risk here as well, particularly, you know, down in that area, which is, you know, it's a Labor seat, but it's one the coalition's looking at down at Jarvis Bay. Yes, yeah, Gilmore. But yeah, would you like a would you like a nuclear subbase in Gilmore? Um, anyway, yeah. So there, there are all of those things. So yeah, look, it's a bit of politics, and it's a bit of it's a bit of uh, practice, as I was trying to say a second ago. Right, we we do actually have a problem here that we're we're attempting to fix, um, and whomever wins the next election is going to going to be inheriting the AUKUS problem big time. Uh, you know, are these submarines ever going to be built in this country I have my doubts I really do um you know it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me you know at what point does that communicate get communicated to the Australian public oh sorry guys actually we're not going to build them here we're going to buy them off the shelf from you know uh, uh, London or America right at, at what point does that become known at, at what point does the cost become known and uh, and also what is happening in the geopolitical environment in the interim um you know, all of these are big and important questions that go beyond a bit of pre-election politicking, but there's certainly that at large at the present time as well. Yeah, a couple of decades, I'm sure, between now and when they, if they get here, is uh, certainly enough time for some big changes on the political scene internationally. Um, we've got questions in here from Jill uh, Newton. Do we think a khaki election is unlikely to help the coalition as much as it expects, um, which we have uh, touched on a little today? Catherine, can I come to you on that first, on the prospect of a khaki election? Yeah, well, it's sort of interesting, uh, I think, that, you know, that, that poll trend that we flagged a bit earlier in today's episode, the sort of you know, the, the more nuanced view of voters on China is not an automatic starter in our question this week for people to be thinking the coalition automatically does this stuff better than Labor. That does point to some sort of a shift. Uh, but again, it's sort of, it's the problem with our data. It's sort of like, this is a really valiant exercise that we do, it's sort of tapping the national mood. Um, but, but seats are elections are determined by the point of view in a number of different seats, right? Unless, as Pete has been saying, you know, the, the flood's on, and sorry about the metaphor, but that the big mood for change is on, right? 
it's a seat by seat proposition, and we don't really have our kind of um, you know microscope down at the seat level looking at how these things are playing out. Certainly at the national level, it suggests there's a bit of a sea change on. There's another piece of evidence that I think is quite interesting. Uh, from the time when we were last together, which is a fortnight ago, you know, we were right in the middle of that hurly-burly Manchurian candidate kind of rah-rah going on from Scott Morrison at that point in time where he was really trying to paint Labor as a national security risk uh, that, that had a rare backlash from elements of the national security establishment in Canberra. And while Morrison hasn't changed the overall message frame that we live in an uncertain times and risky world, he's dialed that stuff way down. So whether that means uh, that he, he overshot and voters thought he overshot or whether they're concerned that they really don't want ASIO bashing them up every five minutes about this stuff, I don't know. But I think there has been. Although he hasn't given, he hasn't given up though, Catherine. He's no, no, trying he to link Ukraine no. to China, and no, no, I, totally. I don't think he's, yeah. I don't think he's thrown in the towel yet on that no, one. No, 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 no. The message frame is still there, but I, I think some of the specific claims he's kind of mm. just starting to moderate a little, right? No, I mean, mm. I totally agree, Pete. Like this is the play. The car key election is the play, um, but I think we, if we look closely, we see a little bit of. Mess. Message moderation. Yeah. So, yeah, but we get back to that point, I think, and Pete made it most compellingly. I think that, yeah, the, the, the risk for Labor at the moment is not so much the issue, although the issue is always tricky for them, but that deprival of bandwidth to just get your own messages out there. It seems to me that those big national moments reinforce the strength of a leader. And I do think the one thing that's happened to Morrison over the last 18 months is his. Um, authority has been undermined, partly from performance, partly from quite a targeted political strategy from the opposition to bring into doubt his character and his sense of responsibility. So I, I think he's going to struggle in that regard. Well, that was our webinar show called Poll Position that's made for us by the Australia Institute. There's a video of this too, so that you can see all of the slides if you're interested in having a look at that. I'll link to it on my podcast webpage on The Guardian. I'll also put up a link where you guys can register for the conversation if you want to watch it live next time. It's just a Zoom meeting, very easy to register and pop in so that you can ask us a question in the Q&A section of the conversation. Thanks so much to Miles Martignoni, who is our show's EP. Thank you very much to Camilla Hannon, who edited the program for me this week. And of course, we'll be back in your feeds this coming Saturday. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. 
Hi, my name is Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic, and I'm excited to talk to you about Club Med. Club Med operates beach and mountain resorts and is the best all-inclusive getaway for families. They have Club Med Punta Cana, their flagship family resort, and many other options in Mexico, the Caribbean, and around the world. Club Med are the pioneers of the all-inclusive concept, which is the best way to vacation. Great for families, groups, or even solo travelers looking for land and water sports, delicious food and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us, call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.